0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women.
1: I think it's vitally important that we continue to work on not just our official exchanges, but what we call public diplomacy, reaching out citizen to citizen through a variety of channels to try and understand each other, even if we can't solve the differences in that way.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girl Security for Women's History Month to facilitate conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. This conversation features girl security scholar, Rachel Rochford and Ambassador Laura Kennedy, a retired U.S. career diplomat. The pair discussed past and present international relations issues, the Role of Foreign Service Officers and Ambassador Kennedy's Incredible Career Path. This episode was pre-recorded on February 18th before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Rachel and Ambassador Kennedy, thank you both for joining us here on the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Rachel, before I turn the mic over to you for your conversation with Ambassador Kennedy, let's get to know you a little better. What sparked your personal interest in international relations?
2: That's actually kind of a funny story. I've known that I wanted to be in the Foreign Service since I was nine because I was watching a TV show with my parents and one of the characters on there was Ambassador Elizabeth Prentice. I mean, she immediately, she walked into the room and she had this commanding presence. You know, she spoke five languages and she was just a very impressive person to kind of see portrayed in media for me. And so after one time of seeing that, I knew that I wanted to be like that in the future. And that kind of sparked me to look into international relations more and to look into what it meant to be an ambassador and what that career path really looked like.
0: That's terrific, Rachel. I love that you were inspired by this strong fictional character of Ambassador Elizabeth Prentice. And I suspect that we will have some young women inspired today by a real-life ambassador in Laura Kennedy You got to choose the topic and the person you wanted to interview. What did make you decide to discuss the changing field of international relations and to interview Ambassador Kennedy?
2: I chose to speak with Ambassador Kennedy because of her experience in the field. With 40 years in the Foreign Service, that provides a very solid understanding of international relations and also a good perspective to reflect on how the field has changed over the years, where it might be going in the future. And so I really wanted to get her perspective on what diplomacy looked like and how that has changed over the years. So today I'm speaking with Ambassador Laura Kennedy, an expert in international relations who spent nearly four decades as a political officer in the United States Foreign Service. She served in Russia, Turkey, and a number of the new republics that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, including as charged affairs in Armenia and Ambassador and Turkmenistan. She also served as ambassador to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva, and charged at our mission to the UN in Vienna, where she was focused on nuclear non-proliferation. Among her assignments in Washington, she was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and Deputy Commandant at the National War College. Welcome to the Smart Woman, Smart Power podcast, Ambassador Kennedy. Your work history is extremely impressive, and I'd like to start with your career in the Foreign Service. How did you get into foreign affairs, and what drew you to the field initially?
1: Rachel, hi. First of all, I wanted to thank you, as well as the folks at Girl Security and CSIS for inviting me to participate. I'm a big fan of both of these organizations. But unlike you, with your fascinating story of knowing that at the age of nine, you wanted to be a diplomat, uh, that was not my experience. I mean, after all, up until 1972... Women's possibilities in the diplomatic field were very circumscribed. As a matter of fact, it was only in in 1972 when women were allowed to remain in the service if they got married. So, I mean, today that seems like the most gross denial of basic rights, but that was accepted back then until a number of, let me say, very smart women pushed the boundaries and began lawsuits and so on. And so they started to, to change the rules thanks to many smart women before me that really made a career in diplomacy possible or attractive to me. With that background, I would say that my own upbringing predisposed me to an interest in the Foreign Service. I was the child of a naval officer who had himself left college to join the Navy during World War II and then stay. So I was sort of imbued with the notion of public service from a very early age. Also, because of the nature of his career as a child, we moved constantly, which is... <laughs> Learning to navigate new surroundings, make new contacts uh, in new areas is something that, again, is a core skill for the Foreign Service. So, again, I I learned that early on. But it wasn't really until graduate school that I set my eyes on the Foreign Service and then joined after I got my uh, graduate degree in international relations and Asian studies. And then, of course, I spent the bulk of my career working not in East Asia or Southeast Asia, but in Eurasia and that part of the world.
2: Thank you so much. So with that all said, what is it like then to spend the majority of your career, if not the majority of your life, since you did mention being abroad as a child as well, in another country, often operating in a foreign language? And further, how do you believe that working and living in so many different countries and cultures has impacted your worldview?
1: Well, it is a challenge. I mentioned that, you know, I spent my childhood, you know, sort of learning to do that. But on the other hand, that was always within the United States. So the challenges are obviously much magnified by being overseas. And I'd note that the typical Foreign Service officer spends about two thirds of their career overseas. So that's obviously comes with the job. And so when we recruit for a test for people, it's that ability to learn new cultures. That is that is a skill we look for and then nurture when we get in. And indeed, you mentioned language that is very difficult. We do have one huge advantage as native English speakers in that English really is a lingua franca apologies to my French colleagues, around uh, the world. So, for example, when I worked at the UN or in international organizations, although, for example, there's six official UN languages, official documents are translated or interpreted into them. Dirty little secret is a lot of the key work is actually done in English. So we do have a big advantage in that English is used so widely around the world. On the other hand, if you want to get outside of sort of the elite certain city, you really need to know the language. I started out learning Russian, which was sort of a shock to the system. Different alphabet, different grammatical structure. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'd never studied inflected language before. So it's very tough. And then actually having to work in it, learn a very extensive vocabulary. But on the other hand, at least Russian is in another Indo-European language. Then when I tackled Turkish later on, uh, another real shock to the system. But again, it's really invaluable in terms of trying to really delve in and get to know different peoples and understand their cultures. I mean, because, of course, we all express ourselves in language. It really gives you an invaluable channel of communication. I do think we really need to work hard at developing our language skills as a really essential window into other cultures.
2: Definitely. And with doing this work abroad and spending so much time in other languages, how are you able to connect with other people? And how important would you say that language is as a factor in this?
1: I think very important. I mean, as I said earlier, we have an advantage in that a lot of official work is done in English. But if you want to get beyond capitals and official settings, there's really no substitute for learning the other language. And This really came home to me when I was serving my first assignment in Moscow, which was in some ways the toughest of my career, because I was struggling with how to actually work in another language. The embassy burned three weeks after I got there. It was sort of a nightmare. But it toughens you up, and everything was sort of a little easier after that. And I also had a great opportunity, that first assignment. I was detailed out of the embassy to work with an exchange exhibit that spent two months apiece in different cities of the former Soviet Union. So my first city actually was Ukraine, Kiev, in the old days. And so this ability there to interact directly with our visitors. And speaking the language there really gave me a huge career-long interest in and appreciation for what we call public diplomacy. That is beyond just the official meetings with government and so on. Your ability to connect with publics uh, around the world, that left an indelible impression on me. Just those way back then gave me a sense of Ukrainian nationalism within uh, the country and the intense Soviet neuralgia to it. But anyhow, really getting out of your office is key to being a good Foreign Service officer.
2: Definitely. I think that's a really good point, too, about the Ukraine situation right now. Since one of your first postings was as an FSO in the Soviet Union and in Ukraine, how far do you think that U.S. relations with Russia have come since then?
1: You know, I started in the business during, of course, the Cold War. And so we were acknowledged foes, it was very much, a, you know, sort of a bipolar world. And then, of course, that huge change as the old empire dissolved. And then I sort of moved from a focus in Moscow to dealing with the new republics. But in some ways, of course, we've seen a circling back to the bad old days. And in some ways, I've never seen relations with Russia as bad as they are today. And I guess what worries me, too, is aside from the bad relations on a government front, our ability to interact with publics has been circumscribed as well. We don't have a lot of the exchanges that we had very painfully built up. There's been sort of a reassertion of control on public television and so on in, in Russia. So there's real public antipathies that have grown up which are, I think, very, very damaging, which is why, despite the really tough situation we are in today, that I think it's vitally important that we continue to work on not just our official exchanges, but what we call public diplomacy, reaching out citizen to citizen through a variety of channels to try and, you know, basically understand each other, even if we can't solve the differences
2: in that way. You raise a really great point about the importance of public perception and diplomacy. I was actually able to participate in the virtual Nisly russian Summer Exchange, and it was really a wonderful opportunity for me to gain an understanding of that culture as someone who hadn't visited the country.
1: Well, yeah, great. I'm delighted to hear that, Rachel. And uh, of course, COVID, as we all know, has put an additional huge crimp worldwide, although technology has been our friend and given us you know, new possibilities to intersect, which we all treasure, especially in these difficult times. But I hope, on the other hand, that we can continue to embrace the opportunities that technology has given us. There is a huge benefit still to face-to-face interactions, whether it's informal diplomacy or the public diplomacy and exchanges that you just mentioned.
2: Absolutely, and I think that the rising tensions between the U.S. and Russia are definitely contributing to this lack of public understanding. For example, this summer, at least to the best of my understanding, Russia has been pulled off the list of potential exchange countries for the program I did last year. Yeah, no, that's a shame.
1: And, and unfortunately, despite all the great programs, one, some that we had painfully, as I mentioned, built up during the bad old days of the Cold War, but new exchange and stuff. Sadly, Russia itself started pulling back from these. I mean, no more Peace Corps, cutting off exchanges, putting real huge limitations on non governmental organizations or foundations working in Russia, so it's a sad situation, but I think there's still opportunities. So I'm delighted that you pursued that one, and I hope we'll keep looking for opportunities because, you know, really they are more important than ever in this very tense world.
2: Definitely, and in the context of the tension that exists, what advice would you give to FSOs in Russia or Ukraine right now? You know, I'm not sure I
1: would presume to it because they're right there, and I'm sitting here comfortably in Washington, of course, as you know, we've drawn down our embassy in Kiev. Luckily, we you know, have a spot in Lviv uh, in the West. But, you know, this is an extraordinary situation when you're literally every day dealing with the prospect of invasion, uncertainty, and all of the million and one things you have to try and accomplish on behalf of the American citizens who have sent you there. So Ukraine is is obviously a a special case, but Russia, uh, the folks in Russia have been not only dealing with a whole range of issues in a hostile environment, but because of this back and forth we've had where, you know, we have limited, say, the number of Russian diplomats and so on as part of our sanctions for Russian misbehavior in a variety of fields then they retaliate, and reciprocity is sort of a basic operating principle (laughs) in in diplomacy, but it can get to the point where there's very little left to work with. So, for example, we have just a tiny, tiny number of uh, diplomats in Moscow. Recently, the Russian government declared persona non grata, i.e. expelled, the number two in the embassy. Now, the deputy chief of mission plays a crucial role in any embassy and moreover our ambassador in moscow is a not a career ambassador i mean my you know a lot of respect for him for for doing this job at a very difficult time so yeah they're working at a tiny tiny skeleton crew and it's particularly i think difficult because we really need to keep those channels of communications open obviously our presidents can and do talk the foreign ministers are Planning to meet next month. But I think, for example, back to the the Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, Khrushchev was sending a vitally important response to Kennedy, which they gave to the embassy in Russian. And then the embassy, and thank God we had, you know, good language capable, just had to like take that document, split it up and then translate it and then type it up and send it back. So it can really matter having those language capable people on hand. I mean, we do have obviously things like the hotline and so on before. But yeah, it's very difficult. And aside from, say, places like Russia and Ukraine, so many difficult posts all around the world where you're dealing with civil unrest, disease, terrorism. It's a really demanding career. So a lot of these flossy depictions of life in the Foreign Service are wildly outdated if they were ever Quite true. That said, I don't mean to be discouraging because it really is a fascinating field and you are doing good. You're working on behalf of your citizens and dealing with some really intractable problems. It's not your typical nine-to-five job.
2: I would imagine that changing administrations would add to that since a new set of policies and priorities could potentially be implemented every four years. With that said, were there any instances in your career in which you either questioned your decision to enter public service or questioned your willingness to stay in the field because of orders that were coming down from a new administration? If so, what happened and why did you decide to keep going?
1: No, I never had that crisis of conscience that people in particular policy situations had to deal with because although the rule of the foreign service, public service in general, is that you are expected to support Publicly, the policy of the administration. And I underline that word publicly, because along with that is not only the right to dissent within, but I would argue the obligation. So we have a well developed policy, you know, interagency process. And certainly I haven't uh, agreed with all the policies, but you do have the opportunity to try and shape it from within. So I've always thought that I had that possibility. In 2008, I was considering retiring. I think so many in the Foreign Service were sort of ground down by the years of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. But you know, I sort of hated to go out on a, on a sour note, and I decided I'd wait until the election. And then I think we had a great new president, President Obama, who really revived, particularly in nuclear issues with his Prague agenda, where he put nuclear disarmament and nuclear nonproliferation at the top of the national agenda. So I felt very fortunate to be able to work with this new administration and represent it in Geneva in disarmament. You know, by 2008, as I say, I was feeling a little disgruntled, but stuck around a little bit longer and really glad I did. Because I say, as somebody who had worked off and on in my career in the arms control field, I was very excited to have a president that, again, was putting this at the top of his uh, agenda.
2: Since you're currently working on these issues of nonproliferation and arms control and have been for some time, I wanted to ask, how did you get into the sector? It's a very specific portion of international relations.
1: Well, good question, Rachel. And, and actually, there's some good literature on, on sort of the women in this field. I think of one that Foundation Washington did called the Consensual Straightjacket that interviewed a number of women in the field. Because indeed, when I began my work in the arms control field, I mean, I literally just can't remember any women who were assigned there. This is in Vienna, the old conventional forces negotiations. So it was not a particularly women-friendly field, but I got into it because, as I mentioned, my first overseas assignment was Moscow, and they were looking for a Russian-speaking officer at uh, the negotiation, and I'd just come straight out of Moscow at that point. So I was sort of a little bit predestined because I had that Russian language capability. And I'm happy to say that over the years, women have really come into their own in the field. But it's taken, you know, I'd say a generation to do that because, again, at the beginning, Very few women in a field, particularly in the conventional field where military people, officers and so on, obviously had a lot of importance in the talks with their backgrounds. And at that point, of course, women were barred from combat roles in the military, so had less, uh, say, opportunities themselves. But we've come a long way, I'm glad to say. And I think the field is far better for it.
2: As a woman who was entering the field at a time when there were not a lot of women involved, how did you sort of navigate that? I know for me personally, I've had so many wonderful female mentors with Girl Security and with Nisley who have really helped push me to learn more about international relations, but how was it going without that?
1: You know, that very beginning was, as I say, difficult. I did have some great bosses, including, you know, some notoriously difficult ones. But my ambassador was one who was considered a very difficult person to work for. On the other hand, he prized people who worked hard. So I basically just worked hard. And if it meant going in on a Sunday, I did it because I had a great opportunity. I accompanied him, you know, on visits to other Warsaw Pact capitals um, that were involved in these negotiations. But yeah, I mean, I paid for it in the sense that we'd have a whole day's long program of talks and official dinners and things. And then I'd go back to my room and start writing on a long pad and stay up till however, whatever hour in the morning I finished writing up the stuff. And then I'd slip it under his door so he can read it, annotate it and turn it over to the embassy the next morning to start typing up a cable. So basically, work hard and, and show you can do the work. But it was enormously welcome to me when more women started coming, including in that first assignment in Vienna, because oftentimes a lot of work it actually gets done just in around dinners or the coffees or people going out for a cigarette break or something. So you have to be able to intersect personally and you know, if there's some sort of boys' club that was gonna go off in golf or something and talk business and you're not part of it, that could be very injurious. Luckily I've had some great bosses and certainly great women mentors. I talked at the beginning about I've always been conscious of those women who back in the seventies and before were fighting to assert the right of women to be in diplomacy. So you really need to always think about the, the next generation. And I'm I'm really in awe of so many of the um folks out there. I mean just Somebody like you who decides at uh, the age of nine that you want to be in diplomacy and has been following it up, obviously, in your education and and choices.
2: Thank you. As you've said, a career in public service, while very interesting, is also very difficult. What motivates you to keep working and how's that source of motivation changed throughout your career?
1: I think I mentioned that in some ways my first assignment was was the roughest in a lot of ways. So it's sort of like I got through that so I can deal with anything. But some of the toughest things are just the obvious ones, just being away from family. When I mentioned that technology can be really be our friend, I was thinking back to those early years where you're halfway around the world and there was no, no internet, no connectivity as we had today. Just to even call your family back in the United States was extremely expensive. That was probably my major expense in those early years. And then in the old Soviet Union, you had to sort of book an international phone call, which could be easily cut off. So just being away from friends and family is difficult. And then also just parochial issues like, well, not parochial, but how you manage to raise a family yourself overseas. I mean, this is something that all families face in the United States, how you balance family and career. So it's not unique to the Foreign Service, but what is unique is having to do it overseas without, say, many of your homegrown support networks back in, in the States. So those were some of the challenges. But again, having good mentors can really keep you going in a lot of ways. And also, That even when things are tough, you're working not for the sake of getting a paycheck, although obviously that's vital. But basically, it does come down to the rewards of working, knowing you're doing important work and knowing you're doing it on behalf of your country is, is certainly a, a reward. And, you know, it can also be enormously fun and exciting being involved with or at least being a witness to history, as they say, seeing so many different places around the world and getting to know people that you wouldn't perhaps otherwise. So, yeah. Yeah. Even though it can be a tough career, I'm still an enthusiastic recruiter for the foreign service.
2: I know that for me, one of the most interesting or exciting aspects of international relations is the potential to have an impact on the world. I think the field really opens up so many wonderful opportunities to make a difference in the world and to have a value. With that, I think we're about out of time. Thank you so much, Ambassador Kennedy, for being with us here today on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast.
1: Okay. Well, Rachel, thank you for your interest in this field. And good luck with your career. I mean, stay in touch. As I say, I'm still an unofficial but enthusiastic uh, recruiter for service in the State Department or, or indeed any branch of public service. So all the best and uh, let's stay in touch.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power Podcast is supported by Raytheon.